I saw other. She was old enough to walk. She walked right past me, past Lady and me, over to Mammy. Other reached into the top of Mammy's dress and pulled out my mother's breast. Planter didn't see me hiding behind Lady's skirts or see the look Mammy gave me over Other's head. Planter only saw his daughter taking pleasure where he himself had done. Now I'm grown, I wonder what Lady saw. This is a quote from Alice Randall's 2001 novel, The Wind Done Gone, a novel that calls itself the unauthorized parody of an American classic, Gone with the Wind. I am Stephanie Schaefer, the host of Lady Fiction, a podcast series at America Zentrum Hamburg, and I'm excited to be talking parody, family, and race matters for our episode today. As we're recording this, uh, in early December 2022, after the midterm elections in the U.S. and in the midst of the holiday season, U.S. politics is once more put to the test. We're reading news of anti-Semites and white supremacists teaming up with the Republican Party self-declared presidential candidate, Donald Trump, a meddling that puts the GOP to a test. How far this extremist sympathy will go, no one knows as of now. But to make a little sense of it, we will take a look at race relations as negotiated in the cultural imaginary of the U.S. and the nostalgia for the romanticized white Southern way of life that was ended with the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War. So today, Lady Fiction turns, in a kind of a sideways move, to the American classic Gone with the Wind, a story that is well known inside and outside the U.S., Originally a novel turned into a film in 1939 and arguably a mainstay of American popular culture, Gone with the Wind is the melodramatic romance story about the white southern belle Scarlett O'Hara and her love interest Red Butler, both members of the white southern elite who see their world go up in flames in the Civil War. We will revisit the story through the lens of the unauthorized parody of The Wind Done Gone, a text in which Scarlet is called Other, as we heard in the opening, and the narrator is her black half-sister Prissy Sonara, who is the real love interest of the rakish Red Butler. And if you're now thinking, ooh, I wonder how that plays out, I can tell you that's what I also thought when I was first introduced to The Wind Done Gone by my guest, Dr. Cedric Essie. And I'm thrilled to have him here today. Hi, Cedric. Hi, Stephanie. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So uh, before we dive into Gone with the Wind and The Wind Done Gone, a few words of introducing my guest are imperative, I think. So... Cedric Essie is a postdoctoral fellow at the Research Center Law and Literature at the Universities Münster in Osnabrück in Germany and associate editor of the journal America Studien American Studies. He received his PhD in American Studies from FAU Erlangen-Nürnberg and his thesis is titled Interracial Family Memoirs, Claiming Genealogies Across the Collar Line. Cedric's work focuses on critical race theory, cultural legal studies, and queer studies. He has received fellowships from Harvard University, from UC Berkeley, Yale University, and the University of Southern Denmark. And most recently, he edited the special issue of American Studies, Common Grounds, American Democracy After Trump, together with Heike Paul and Boris Vormann. So, Cedric, 
The Wind on Gone, an unauthorized parody. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us a little bit through how this story works and uh, what it does with Gone with the Wind? Yeah, sure. So The Wind on Gone was published in 2001, but it's still a very timely novel because it raises the central question of how deeply racialized American past should be remembered. And the diary is all about remembering the past and remembering the past, piecing together and reconstructing a new altered account of what happened and how we should position ourselves in, in relation to that past. And I really think that Randall's Wayne Don Gone is a masterpiece, um, really goes to the heart of current mainstream controversies around Confederate monuments. Perhaps uh, this is what I'm trying to say in my book. Randall is trying to take down the perhaps biggest Confederate monument there is, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, right? And mm. I think we can mm. understand Mitchell's novel as a literary monument to the Confederacy, in part because of its epic proportions, right? So my edition runs for roughly a thousand pages, and the new German mm -hmm. translation runs for 1,400 uh, pages. But we also can think of Mitchell's novel as a Confederate monument because of the way it romanticizes, defends, and mourns slaveholding plantation life in the antebellum South. But we can also think of Gone with the Wind as this Confederate monument because of its unparalleled exposure. I mean, it's still the biggest best-selling book in American history in the U.S. Yeah. It's the biggest yeah. best-selling book after the Bible. And for a generation, mm. the novel and the movie have informed the way the antebellum South is imagined in the U.S., but also in Germany. And Randall not only yeah. critically writes back to Gone with the Wind, it demolishes this literary monument and its ideological mm. foundations. Okay, so um, um, I could say a bit more about very, the actual plot. If <laughs> that was the actual question. Yes, obviously. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when I when I thought about this, how to, to to frame Gone with the Wind, I I really struggled with the fact that I think most people will know the story, um, even if you're not American. I think you do come across it at some point. The plot of Gone with the Wind is basically the romance story of the White Southern Belle, Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, who has lots of love troubles. First, she's in love with one guy who marries somebody else. Then she's, uh, she marries herself. She's widowed twice. And finally, she falls for the rakish, uh, infamous Red Butler. But um, she only realizes that he is the true love of her life towards the end. So it's very melodramatic. And it's framed by really pompous, extra diegetic music and uh, the tableau in front of which this is happening is the demise of the southern plantation system. That is the plot. Now, Cedric, what do you think, What what what's really going on and what does Randall do with this in The Wind Undone? Yes, I really like this very accurate summary of the plot, but the question becomes what the story is about, uh, and I think there are different ways of answering what this incredibly long and incredibly popular novel is about, because it has meant very different things for different audiences. And for some audiences, it's not really about the romance between Scarlet and Red, right? So many people have explained and defended 
their love for Gone with the Wind by understanding the novel primarily as an exceptional story of love that is merely set against the backdrop of the American Civil War. But for mm -hmm. me, as a scholar in Black Studies, the Civil War is so much more than the circumstantial backdrop um, for a romance that is still a romance between two white supremacist slaveholders, right? Yeah. I mean, they're portrayed as yeah. these reluctant confederates, but we let that sink in. It's a romance of, yeah. between two slaveholders. And I think if you focus on race, which is kind of my bread and butter, the novel is about two main things. It's a story about the Civil War, and it's a story about the era of the Great Depression when the novel was uh, written and published, right? So roughly 60 years after, right? 50, 60 years after. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people back then and people who are infatuated with Margaret Mitchell's novel read it as a somewhat authentic account of antebellum life because it's supposedly based on the stories that the author has heard as a child listening to her grandfathers and all these uh, people in her social orbit, right? So I think it's a story about the Civil War. It's also a story about the Great Depression. And when we look at the Civil War, Gone with the Wind really is a neo-Confederate story. It's really much yeah. invested in um, lost cause ideology. It mourns the end of slave-holding plantation life and the antebellum South is presented as this lost paradise, right? You talked about Scarlet and she functions as this gendered allegory of the Confederate South as a defiant, suffering, but persevering victim of the North. And we need mm -hmm. to keep in mind that the Southern Belle, she's still an enslaver, but this enslaver is represented as this innocent Southern Belle who must come of age, right? So Gone with yes. the Wind is not about anytime it addresses suffering in any way, it's focusing on white suffering. It's focusing on the white yes. suffering of the enslavers, right? Another way that I find interesting, another way of answering what Gone with the Wind is about would be to look at the historical context of its publication, right? It offered a kind of uplifting story for white Americans during the challenges of the Great Depression through the lens of the Civil War. And from yeah. this angle, it becomes a story about, quote unquote, resilient whiteness. Um, think of this famous quote by Scarlett when she yelling toward the sky as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. I really, and like other scholars, read this quote in terms of a, a moment that kind of, or a quote, a moment that inspired determination during the economic climate of the Great Depression. Mm. But I really do think mm. that if we understand Scarlet as an allegory, it also expresses a nation's commitment to white supremacy in the face of growing challenges to Jim Crow laws in the same era. And then, yes, go ahead. Yeah, and Scarlett, I think she's also this this uh, white power girl. So that yes. works really well for depression era uh, white feminist uh, understandings because she's yeah. an entrepreneur, and uh, she says, "I'll never go hungry again." Well, and then she starts a business herself, which is like, "Ooh, narrative of you know white woman getting getting things done because she has to." So that's a it's an important latching onto point specifically for yeah. a white readership uh, for for a female readership also. She's a white heroine, so to speak. Yeah, she's a, a sort of like a proto feminist figure, right? Mm. And mm. it really explains yeah. her popularity among uh, female readers, even across diff across racial lines sometimes. And I think it also explains her popularity among drag performances or drag artists. 
Scarlett O'Hara is a reference point wow. in American drag culture. You see the last name wow, used as part that. of drag names, even as part of the drag names of black drag queens. Um, oh, wow. And problematically, when Don Gone as a setting comes up in one of the first seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. So this kind of wow. weird text about the antebellum South kind of pops up everywhere in American popular culture and beyond. Okay, so so okay, let's. This is turning out to be more of a conversation about Scarlet, but I think it's so intriguing. So Scarlet is the white heron, and she it becomes a drag symbol, right? A, a drag yeah, because character. she, um, it's so cool. Yeah, I mean, she's read as a version of feminist empowerment, right? Yeah. As a, a as a, I think she is so appealing to different audiences that struggle with gender identities because she's refusing to fit into or to submit to specific norms of gender identities in the antebellum South. And what else is, it's also interesting to note that in the novel, she's not described as a beauty, right? But I think that's just a metaphor okay. that speaks to her allegorical quality and that also kind of emphasizes her resistance to fit into or submit to expectations um, of her yeah. era, right? Yeah, but I think we need to keep in mind that her feminist empowerment very much relies on anti-blackness. On yes, absolutely, and uh, there's the uh, yeah the fungibility of the black body, also the availability yeah. of of unpaid labor. So uh -huh. we have to talk about what happens with uh, Scarlet when she becomes other, other, in uh, the wind done gone in the narrative voice that addresses us in the wind done gone. What does Randall do? Yes, yeah, so. The Wind on Gone is presented as this diary manuscript from the 19th century that is allegedly found posthumously published at the uh, beginning of the 21st century. And the what's really a brilliant move is that the story is being retold from a, the perspective of a character who doesn't exist in the original version, right? So the protagonist and narrator of Wind on Gone is the black half-sister of Scarlett O'Hara. So we're getting Scarlett's black half-sister, previously previously unknown black half-sister, is giving us an account of what really happened behind the scenes. That's the opening quote that you read from. So uh, this is uh, Sonara Oprissi, the narrator, looking at other, her Scarlett, walking over to their shared mother. Yeah, perhaps I could like briefly talk about the quote I picked out for. Yes, let's talk about the opening podcast. quote and what it does. I picked this particular quote. I think it's a very intriguing and representative quote from the diary. It illustrates the opaque style of the diary. Um, it's representative in its focus on interracial lineage, a lineage in antebellum America that exemplifies the diary's intertextual relationship to Gone with the Wind. And it is really like representative of this attempt to reconstruct and document her life under slavery and how slavery mm -hmm. forced her mother to breastfeed Scarlett O'Hara instead of her, right? How slavery yep. undercut mm -hmm. black kinship relations through separate logics of property. And I picked this quote because of the frequent usage of verbs of sight, right? It's um Let's take a, take another look. Yeah. yeah, the metaphor of the gaze is central in this diary, right? It's mm. inviting readers to ask themselves, 
what might be missing from the nostalgic picture that Mitchell draws of the antebellum South and the Gone, Gone with the Wind. What can we see mm. from which angle, who's looking, who's being looked at, and why? Because of its properties as a parody, it's really inverting everything that you find in Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind in yeah. itself is a kind of excessive text and its investment in racial purity and its investment in the lost cause. And the Wind on Gone is turning all of that around by inventing and putting something front and center that is ultimately the ultimate taboo, which is mixed mm. race, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is a spoiler, but you can't really talk about the Wind on Gone without the spoiler. But um, <laughs> when, Gone with the Wind, Mitchell's novel really relies on this uh, obsession and fantasy of racial purity. So anytime a mm. black person appears in, this, in, the, in her novel, that person is always emphasized in as pure black, shining black, right? And then wow. um, in Randall's account, pretty much each and every character turns out to be of Black ancestry. So in Wind Gone, yeah. Scarlett O'Hara is really, is really Black and just passing for white. And I think that's wow. part of why yeah. the novel, why the parody has engendered such mixed responses. Like some people yeah. loved it, some people hated it, some people didn't understand it. Yeah. Yeah, before we move to this, You said some people hate it, some people love it. I think, you know, with a bit of a cultural remove that I as a, as a German-American studies scholar might have, you know, I think it's a wonderful parody. And I agree that it's a parody uh, of Gone with the Wind because it throws things back at you mm -hmm. uh, and it's doing it provocatively with this inversion. So it's really asking us to be our own kind of history detectives yes, uh, and say, yes. okay, so Gone with the Wind tells us one, one story about how it was for the white folks in the South who lost everything in the Civil War. And then the Wind Gone comes in and, and does what you talked about, namely ask us whose perspective don't we know? Whose ghost mm -hmm. don't we see? Or what have we overlook what has history capital H history overlooked in this context and mm -hmm. um, that's why um, it's also not very surprising that people have such an emotional investment and that they get yes. pissed off yes yes, uh, yes, 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 yes you know the 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 the, the endeared text that they kind of grow up with is um, is parodied and inverted yeah and I mean Gone with the Wind represents the sort of civil religious mythological shrine of southern identity And if someone demolishes this shrine, it is received as a sort of sacrilege, right? And especially if the, the allegorical protagonist is supposed to signify racial purity, white yeah. Southern femininity, and it turns out in this account that she's part Black, this is, of course, an affront. But it's also very interesting rereading of Gone with the Wind, because if you read, if you reread Gone with the Wind from the perspective of Wind Gone, you see that Randall really is a literary study scholar because she is using Gone with the Wind as a sort of archive and she becomes a detective yeah. and she's finding all these little tropes and but is turning these tropes against the master text, quote unquote master text, right? Let me give you one example. Skull O'Hara refers to herself with the N-word after the Civil War to scandalize her new social economic status 
in post-Civil War America, right? And like her new position is scandalized by constantly addressing that her skin has darkened through physical labor and all of that. And there's one moment where right. she stands in front of the mirror and calls herself and tells tells herself, well, you look like an M, right? And wow. Randall's turning all of that around, is reading the text against grain and saying, well, there is another reason why there are so many references that um, associate Scarlett's reconstruction position and identity in proximity to blackness, right? And this is interesting because and this is also another thing I would like to mention is the difference between the novel and the movie adaptation, but we might get to that later. Because I, the, mm -hmm. I think the one reason why the movie adaptation is so popular is because it represents sort of a somewhat sanitized version. It's less explicit in its investment in white supremacy. In the novel, yeah. Scarlet is a focalizer, and we're constantly made privy to her thoughts about African-Americans that really just go back and forth between condescension, hatred, and disgust. In the novel, mm. there is a scene where she, where Scarlet throws up because of the scent of N, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so in the movie, yeah. the movie adaptation doesn't repeat the N-word on an endless loop, but it's actually almost more seductive and dangerous by presenting itself yeah. as more innocent, yeah, innocent yeah, right? Because, I mean, in the movie, you also have this this multimedia spectacle. You have the music, you have the scenery, the extreme colors, which were like state-of-the-art in the 1940s, right? Um, this is a Technicolor movie where you go to the theater and you see the lush beauty of the southern landscapes. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Then, you know, run over by the fire blaze when Atlanta goes up in flames. Yeah. What 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 I find um, also intriguing is when you talk about the the novel and you say that you know there's essentialized blackness is represented over and over and there's talk yes. about depth and the quality of it. What Alice Randall does is um, you know really play out roll out the spectrum right away. This is page two. Uh, where uh, the narrator vocalizer talks about herself and she says, they called me cinnamon because I was skinny as a stick and brown, but my name is Sinara. Now when I tell it, I say they called me cinnamon because I was sweet and spicy. Sweet, hot, strong and black, like a good cup of coffee. Leastways, that's how Planter liked his coffee. That's her father. Mm -hmm. Planter used to say, I was a cinnamon and Mammy was his coffee. So the the the, the, the color references are all over and they're, you know, linked to consumption of blackness. And then, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the shades that results from this. Um, so it's quite obvious that blackness is a, is, a, is a projection of white imagination and a white fantasy and also white sexual desire mm -hmm. um, throughout. And um, this yeah. links to this concept of uh, demolishing the racial purity, that's the fantasy in uh, Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah, um, there's no black and white. There's a spectrum, and it's all entangled. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't really take it apart. Yeah. That's what makes it politically so so provocative, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, that you brought up the names. I mean, all the names are weird, yeah. but they're all telling names. It's yes. uh, to call the mixed race protagonist and biological black half-sister of Scarlett Harris, Sonara Brown, is is a statement. And the name Sonara yeah. is actually drawn from the same poem that inspired the title of Mitchell's epic, Come With the Wind, which I think is an interesting information. And another 
thing I would like to say about the names is that it links blackness to white supremacist consumption and exploitation of blackness, right? So yeah. the milk of black mothers are exploited to actually run the plantation and to nurture the heirs of the plantation. And cinnamon is also just another colonial object that was central to the circulation of goods in the transatlantic yes. slave trade. And it's front and center in that American uh, uh, consumer good pumpkin spice, pumpkin pie. I mean, cinnamon is all over the place in, in, in good old traditional uh, U.S. Uh, holiday cuisine, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I yeah. think other is interesting as a name because it, like on the one hand, it's really about the interdependence of these two allegorical figures of Scarlet and Mammy, other and mother, but it's also a way mm -hmm. of foregrounding black individuality and humanity that is denied in the original text, right? Where yeah. Mammy nev is never given an actual name, it's just Mammy, right? And so mm -hmm. whiteness mm -hmm. is homogenized and dismissed to the periphery of the text to center blackness in terms of individuality, in terms of kinship, in terms of humanity, really. Yeah. And I mean, that's why the opening quote that you read us in the beginning is so also intriguing, but also gruesome, because yes. you imagine a young kid, a child who not only does she know that she has no claim to her mother's body and comfort, but she has to take a backseat and watch a wild, a, a, a white child walk up. And as she watches this, you know, white child, you know, getting the comfort and the, the presumably the care, the nourishment, the nutrition from her own mother, biological mother, she also wonders uh, what was Lady thinking. So mm -hmm. that's that's the triangulation. Uh, lady Planter's wife, who's uh, the mother of other, <laughs> cannot nourish or will not nourish her own child, and she sees this this comfort and care scene happening as well as does uh, Mammy's or the mother's own black enslaved daughter. So it's a really unsettling family scene that basically breastfeeding is such intimate and um, presumably natural display of, uh, of femininity, mm -hmm. but it's so fraught across racial lines and the absence of body sovereignty and uh, mm -hmm. um, belonging to yourself, belonging to uh, your child that it's really grueling, it's revolting. So it's, it's, it links to what we talked about when you said, you I like that you call this a demolition. Yeah. It's really a demolition of the yeah. idealized uh, nuclear family image. Uh, it's a demolition of everything that Mitchell's neo-Confederate fantasy holds dear, right? And uh, yeah. we, when you look at the quote, it kind of tells you about the racialized gender norms in antebellum America and beyond, right? It's about unlimited access to black female bodies and about how white gender norms kind of prescribe um, the opposite, right? I mean, the virgin-like mm -hmm. figures of um, Melanie Wilkes, I think that's her name, and um, Scarlett's, Scarlett's mother, their, their, their idealization kind of runs on inaccessibility right yeah and i think well what what's so powerful about when Dong gone it demolishes the central figure of the mammy in mitchell's gone with the wind because the mammy is 
central to Gone with the Wind. It's central to neo-Confederate self, a Confederate and neo-Confederate self-understanding because the trope of the mammy kind of hides physical and sexual violence and exploitation by portraying slavery as cross-racial familial intimacy and care, right? And when we talk about demolition, the central demolition in Wind Dong Gone is the deconstruction of the mammy myth. It's usually constructed as this figure whose happiness depends on maternal devotion to the white plantation household. She actually turns out to be like the very opposite. It's the, uh, in this historical novel, she is kind of an anti-mammy who is secretly killing off yes. the male heirs um, of the plantation, right? Yes, that's a, okay. Another spoiler alert for our listeners here. Yeah, but uh, that's that's great because yeah. um, uh, the, the the mammy becomes a figure not only with agency but also somebody who really like literally pulls the strings. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she's behind closed doors, behind the scenes, right? Yeah. So the mammy trope is detached from Gone with the Wind's idea of slavery as cross racial care and is repositioned as a symbol of black social death. I think that's. In a nutshell, that's that's what <laughs> what's happening. Wind yes. on gone, and I think it's interesting to look at the aesthetics of Wind on gone because it really revolves around the death of Mammy. So the protagonist hears about the death, about the imminent death of Mammy, and holds awake for her mother. And this physical death actually is becomes a way to symbolically grieve the Mammy myth as uh, a symbol of social death, and the, it's the funeral. The literal funeral on the level of the narrative is really a symbolic way to lay to rest, to, um, symbolic way of laying to rest the very symbol, the very trope of the mammy. So I think that's also where a lot of misunderstandings originate because they've taken the text to literally. Gone with the Wind is an allegorical tale, and so is its parody by Alice Randall, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so the. Nurturing and care and that gratuitous labor, effective labor also that's that's offered by black women mm -hmm. as a kind of a, a letting on to point for readers uh, because of, I mean, mothering and these things, you know, they, they make you feel as a reader, as a viewer of the film, you can you can relate to them or you can it, it, it hits somewhere that is visceral and, and deliberately anti not intellectual. It's not you know, tied to concepts of enlightenment or humanity and stuff like that. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, located somewhere else. And that's why it becomes such a battleground for uh, emotional responses. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I found so intriguing when I read the, the text, it's a, it's a series of short scenes. So it's, mm -hmm. um, I would say it's an easy read. And that's so intriguing because what it does on a, a representational level is so complicated. So you re you read through it, and it's there's it's it's really like conversational diary style, but it does this this revolting or demolition work that it's doing. And um, I was struck by its resonances with the slave narrative, that other mm -hmm. genre of black writing in a white envelope. Uh, I think it's been called. So the slave narrative as a uh, genre that asserts black humanity um, and uh, assists the abolitionist cause in the 19th century. And uh, part of the formulas in the slave narrative are always the question of where was the narrator born when um, mm -hmm. and how does he or she become free and how does she or uh, he um, leave the status of enslavement and, and gain agency and uh, human recognition as a human. 
right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what Randall does with this um, is asserted right away. So she, she quotes these formulas in the opening. Mm -hmm. uh, when Samara says, today is the anniversary of my birth. She knows exactly when she was born and where. I was born May 25th, 1845 at half past seven in the morning into slavery on a cotton farm, a day's ride from Atlanta. But then chapter two is a really short passage that Uh, maybe we can read uh, quickly here. Chapter two is a is an allegorical story of her life. And this links to your thesis about, you know, Scarlet being an allegory and how Randall picks this up and uh, twists it into uh, her own narrator. So if I strip the flesh of my bones, like they stripped the clothes of my flesh in the slave market down near the battery in Charleston, this would be my skeleton. It's childhood on a cotton farm, a time of shawl-fetch slavery away in Charleston, a bare-breasted hour on an auction block, drudge slavery as a maid in Beauty's Atlanta brothel, when Milledgeville was the capital of Georgia and Atlanta was nothing, a season of candle-flame concubinage in the attic of that house, a watery grand tour of Europe, and finally concubinage in my own white clapboard home with green shutters and gaslights, in the center, near the train depot, of a fast-growing city that has become the capital of Georgia, concubinage that persists till now. How many miles have I traveled to come back to here? So in a nutshell, this is a life story, right? Basically, if there's your basic autobiography from slavery into freedom, even if freedom is concubinage, but it's concubinage with um, green shutters in the own white clapboard home. She, she concludes this with asking how many miles have I traveled to come back to here? So inserted into this progress narrative, problematic as it may be, primed on, uh, you know, sexual exploitation of, uh, of uh, the black narrator, is this circular structure. I come back to here. Uh, it's the capital again. I'm here and I'm, I'm, I'm being a kept woman for, as we find out, Red Butler, the, the, the white confederate and that's that's my life story so it's uh, it's a narrative of agency and becoming human while not being human at the same time you know what i mean yes I'm, i think there's grappling. a lot to unpack here because it might seem it can be an easy read but it's so complex and i've worked on this fictional diary for a while now and i think i have uncovered a lot of intertextual references so cultural references And after years, I still think I've only scratched the surface, really. And so part of this is how the diary works within or refers back to the slave narrative. But it's really explicitly references Frederick Douglass's narrative. But it's actually much more in line with incidents in the life of a slave girl by Harry Jacobs, uh, Harry because Jacobs. it really foregrounds yeah. The domestic scene, uh, the brutalities within the domestic scene of enslavement, it's centering motherhood. And another interesting parallel is that Jacobs's narrative wasn't fully entirely published in her lifetime either. When it was discovered uh, in the late 20th century, it was initially dismissed as a fictional account, right? And so we have oh, wow. a fictional account by Randall, who pretends to be an yeah. actual slave narrative in the form of a diary. And of course, diary is a genre that women, white and black, were relegated to because autobiographical discourse in the 19th century and almost until like the second half of the 20th century is a genre that still 
kind of works within an ideology of separate spheres, right? And yes. privileges. I mean, it's a man thing. Yeah. You say, I'm going to write my autobiography because my life was so intriguing. And, yeah, uh, it's then about you have like authority masculine narratives of socioeconomic accomplish accomplishment, right? But what I also think is interesting about Wendongan is not about the difference between literal legal enslavement and literal freedom. It's really the kind of freedom that this protagonist is looking for is the mental decolonization from the mammy myth, right? Because it's kind of a didactic read because it starts by really buying into the idea of mammy being actually invested in the happiness of her household. And then over the course of a diary, it undergoes a shift because she returns. So it's not just a diary. It's not just a fictional slave narrative. It's also a return quest narrative. And she goes home and that becomes a metaphor of kind of inspecting and reconstructing her own past. And she undergoes a shift from understanding Mammy as being devoted to the O'Harris to understanding that slavery forced her to take care of these children, that these black women had or forced to take care and nurture and breastfeed these white, these white children, right? And she mm. also learns that mm. she wasn't sent away out of indifference, but she was sold away. And that was also a way of, uh, actually a way Mammy expressed her agency because for uh, particular reasons that I don't want to spoil here, tried to protect her and sending her away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one last thing, it might be like almost very highly theoretical, but what I read in this particular a diary entry that you just read out, is almost a word-to-word -word repetition of the opening lines of Horton Spillers' grammar book, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. So what yes. I really think what's happening here in almost explicitly echoing Spillers' words is that Randall is sort of an artistic translation of Black feminist theorizing on Black kinship and Black motherhood under slavery and post-slavery. Yeah, maybe we can quickly say, you know, quickly talk about Spillers. So Spillers is a black feminist whose text, uh, grammar book, uh, Mama's uh, Maybe. Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. Is, I think, more than 20 years old, yeah. um, the text. And she extrapolates that position of, of black women in the white American cultural imaginary, right? Yeah. Um, and so you say, Randall, here fictionalizes it or aestheticizes it with her narrative, yes, right? Yes, that's pretty much my argument. And in her grammar book, she lists a bunch of names under which black women and black mothers are dominantly imagined in America, right? Mm. And mm. then she says all these names, all these stereotypes are overdetermined by a history of enslavement. And it's really difficult to kind of unearth a sense of humanity and individuality from underneath these stereotypes when you go into the archive and try to reconstruct another version of black life under slavery that doesn't reproduce the discourse of the master when you look at lists of items of property, right? And so what I think is mm. that it's almost it's very much in line with the black feminist work of uh, Saidia Hartman and Christina Sharp. For Randall, I think Gone with the Wind is what Sharp might call one of slavery's archives of the everyday, right? And she goes down into this archive of Gone with the Wind and is trying to unearth a new understanding, a different sense of motherhood and kinship from an archive that is erasing 
black kinship that because of the mammy myth that's central to the mammy myth it devouts that this black woman actually might have children of her own right yeah yeah and i mean just in an intriguing you know side remark when i read up on gone with the wind i realized um hattie mcdaniel who played mammy in the film mm -hmm. uh, gone mm -hmm. with the wind was the first african-american winner of an oscar yes <laughs> But uh, during the ceremony, which is, you know, cause for celebration, maybe, but she played a stereotype. But even during the ceremony, she wasn't supposed to sit with the white cast. She had to sit on the, by the side uh, uh, at a different table. So uh, this was, you know, segregation in the film industry as it happened, as, uh, you know, this uh. Uh, black actress was propped up to become the first African-American mm -hmm. to win an Oscar. Yeah. So, so they, this is even, you know, this goes into the structural components yes. of this racism is not an event uh, or slavery is not an event. It's a structural space that's built. And in this space, then, um, you know, it's, it's, as you say, almost impossible to unearth another narrative Yeah. And I mean, Sarita Hartman talks about the afterlife of slavery mm. and Gone with the Wind is part of that, right? It's kind of, Gone with the Wind is actually trying to revive slavery and Gone with the Wind, the novel and the movie actually have taken on a life of their own, right? It yeah. has this weird, yeah. there's this weird afterlife of Gone with the Wind. I mean, there's a drag afterlife that I didn't know about. Yeah. And I mean, so and like so a lot cool. of white feminists use memes of from gone with uh, that use gone with the wind as its raw material to articulate like their defiance towards toward masculine or heteropatriarchal norms okay yeah. so there's like ooh, today i'll be scarlet and i'll yeah. just become an entrepreneur and have many men and uh yeah wow. yeah i mean I, i'm style. just it still very much informs in implicit and explicit ways how Americans, but also Europeans engage with the idea of antebellum America. And just a year ago, the renowned legal studies scholar and critical race theorist, Patricia Williams, actually published a book that's called Giving a Dan. Uh-huh. Right. And I love the title because it's inverting. Yes. Um, it's inverting. I don't give a damn. Like it's an inversion yeah. of neo-confederate indifference. Right. And she uses or she reads Gone with the Wind as this primer on race in America. She looks at Gone with the Wind as a text that reflects and informs how people understand race in America. It actually, there's a really interesting chapter on how plantation weddings are still so popular in the U.S. Oh, because yeah. people have mm. this weird um, association, positive romantic association with Gone with the Wind. Which mm -hmm. is also interesting because it's a, like it's a it's a toxic romance. Yes. Um, so, so I'm really surprised why people understand Gone with the Wind as a as a sort of timeless story of exceptional romance. I mean, that's the way it's advertised. That's the way these endless reruns on TV still attract a large audience. Uh, and I love I love Patricia Williams's book because she is tracing kind of Randall. It's very similar to Randall's parody, actually, because Patricia Williams is tracing Gone with the Wind's echoes all the way to the tweets of Donald Trump, to his uh, foreign policy, to open carry laws. Um, it's, uh, I really strongly recommend 
giving a damn by Patricia Williams. Giving a damn by Patricia Williams, which also speaks to the moment that I that I talked about in the opening, uh, the moment where we're seeing Donald Trump um, mingling and meeting with white supremacists with Barry. Yeah, and I think he allied himself with white supremacist groups when he actually, in one tweet, asked or pretty much tried to pressure HBO into putting Gone with the Wind back on its streaming platform because for a while after in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, HBO took Gone with the Wind from its streaming platform to kind of frame it with a didactic trigger warning in a way, right? Yeah. And so Gone with the Wind was, uh, I think, a powerful moment in what is often referred to as like cancel culture, although it wasn't canceled. Like HBO just took it off its streaming platform to come up with a way to frame it in a different yes yes and, a, and i, I have know, the framing more... here maybe we can okay, i can yeah, read it so, so people were scandalized about this but okay so hbo edited an uh, introductory preface by a film scholar jacqueline stewart who wrote and this is what you would get when you watch gone with the wind gone with the wind is a product of its time and it depicts racial and ethnic prejudices that have unfortunately been commonplace in american society these racist depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. To create a more just, equitable, and inclusive future, we must first acknowledge and understand our history. This picture is presented as it was originally created. Which, you know, if you if you don't know about it, as a viewer, I would say, oh, thank you, that's a nice update, but this was scandalous, right? Yeah, uh, and this is why I do understand Gone with the Wind and Randall's Wind on Gone as implicated in this larger conflict of memory wars and confederate memorials and it became like this not a lightning rod but this i think you used the word battleground to make a bunch of claims about discursive authority who gets to decide on how the american past is remembered who gets to decide the focus of the stories we tell about america's past yeah, and I think it's, I mean, Time Magazine in 2010 called Gone with the Wind as one of America's, not the South's, America's basic mythologies. Oh, and wow. I think the hatred um, and the, the controversial response to Gone with the Wind can be explained by understanding Gone with the Wind itself, the master text, as uh, a sort of origin story. And not just for the South but for the nation, I mean, um, Gone with the Wind, the novel and the movie are very popular across regional lines, actually. And some scholars argue in line with scholars like David Blight, that after the Civil War, the North and the South kind of reconciled over, reconciled through anti-Blackness, right? And yeah. uh, Gone with the Wind is also one of those moments where the North and the South can reconcile by finding like, Peace and a common white superiority, I guess, and then the mammy. Because the mammy is, um, and this is also another reason why I think of Wind on Gone as an abolition of, conf of a Confederate monument, because the mammy is often part, like a statue, or like a statue of the mammy or whatever representation of the mammy often forms part of Confederate memorials. Hmm. Wow, I didn't know and that. And the Mammy statues actually can be found across the U.S. in the North as well as part of Confederate uh, monuments. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all connected. 
it's all connected and it's um it's fraught with sentiment you know and that's what yes. makes it so controversial and people's feelings are hurt around this yeah yes because i think it's so interesting because we talked about the disclaimer the new hbo disclaimer that's such a complicated moment and conflict and i think that disclaimer was prepared and was necessary for some because for some audiences come with the wind is almost a historically somewhat more or less accurate representation yeah. like That's a lot of people like, yeah so all these polls have found out how gone with the wind really still is very much the reference point for people inside and outside the u.s when they think of the history of the south right and i think another problem is that people might want to look or might to watch gone with the wind the movie or read the novel from a critical angle because i think people are still like trying to have their cake and eat it too <laughs> they want to roman story yeah 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 it's because the they want to like they wanna, yeah they want to indulge in the romance and they want to get away with a short critical disclaimer mm -hmm. i don't i don't mm -hmm. know if that's possible i think that gone with the wind should be studied from a critical vantage point in american studies programs but it's not a movie for the holidays i think that would be my that's my position yes thank you i think this is also a wonderful closing statement as we're approaching the holiday so so obviously um it might be you know aired uh or it might be watched again it might be revisited now but you know i'm going to heed your call and say it you know gone with the wind should be viewed critically and i really look forward to your book publication on this Thanks. which explores this demolition that uh, randall does a little further and I think it's it's quite obvious that while on the one hand we might have those white supremacist men, you know, doing their deals um, in Mar-a-Lago and uh, pretending to run politics, um, the visceral and family and uh, uh, effective ties that are so problematic, uh, linking to nostalgia for a past that never was, run large in American cultural products. And Gone with yeah. the Wind is first and foremost in this context. Thank you so much for enlightening me on this. Um, I really appreciate this conversation that we're having. And uh, I'll, I'm going to say it again. The book is coming at some point, and uh, I will be an <laughs> avid reader of it. Thank you for, you know, taking the time out of your busy schedule and for being my guest today, Cedric. Thanks for having me. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.